Welcome to episode 122 of X-Lapse, where, uh, well, it's X-Men Day, and uh, if you've already read the entire uh, X of Swords event, well, you know what this issue's all about, and uh, let's just get into it. <laughs> let's just do it here. This is X-Men, volume 5, number 14. This had a January 2021 cover date, so we are, we are officially in cover year. 2021. Story is X of Swords, Chapter 12, allegedly, uh, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar, and the return of Lionel Francis Yu. Huh. He wasn't gone very long. Huh. Colors, Sonny Go. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White, Sabolsky. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale November 4th of 2020. Now we open with a roll call, and it's a short one. Two people, Apocalypse and Genesis. You might be thinking, well, that doesn't bode well for us, and uh, indeed, you would be correct. It does not bode well for us. From here, we get our double-page spread of creds, and then we open at the Starlight Citadel Garden, where Apocalypse is having himself a think. He is soon met by his wife, or... uh, I'm guessing she's still technically his wife, his genesis, of course. They talk a bit about things like survival of the fittest. It's kind of what they do. Uh, Genesis also accuses Pocky of hiding from her. He claims that he was just looking for a moment's peace, to which she scoffs, suggesting that uh, he's fallen quite far if he's now a man of peace. He turns it back on her, suggesting that uh, as she's now wielding the Twilight Blade, perhaps she's the one who's fallen. Now, the blade, of course, is one of is the one that cleaved Okara in two during the several dozen times we've seen the origins of Krakoa and Arako. Genesis suggests they go for a walk, and they leave their swords behind. Perhaps a, a measure of good faith here so they could have a talk. So, y'all remember that horrendous X-Men number 12? Remember that one, uh, where the creepy summoner shared a story with Apocalypse? Well... Get this, he was lying about many of the details. For instance, he said that Genesis was dead. And, I mean, he literally wound up stabbing Apocalypse in the back, so maybe he wasn't the most reliable historian to listen to. No worries, though, because Jenny's gonna set us all straight. And, uh... mm, Here's the thing. She is going to re-narrate the same exact scenes we already saw in X-Men number 12. That's what this issue is. It's something like 16 pages straight out 
of X-Men number 12 with, up until the very end, negligible changes in the words? I really thought I was being pranked here. When I uh, turned the page here to see an info page, it's one of those mostly blank pages, which introduces us to the history of Arako. It's the same page we saw in X-Men number 12. Now, if you're not reading along, you might think I'm exaggerating here, but no. The bulk of this issue, we mentioned Lionel Francis Yu is back in the credits, it is just yanking those pages out and putting them in this book here. Just with assumedly more reliable narration from Genesis's point of view. The thing is, the narration, as I mentioned here, isn't all that much different until the very end. I don't know why this was necessary. We kick off with the splitting of Kurkawa and Arako, which feels like we've already seen several dozen times at this point. The island, of course, was split by the Twilight Sword, which Genesis now carries. There was a great battle with Arako and the Amenthi aggressors sealed tidally away into a sealed chasm. Yes, we know. Apocalypse remained behind while Genesis and the Horsemen went to war. Genesis suggests that he knows why that was which seems to be a nod toward him being weak or unfit. The rift sealed behind Jenny and the boys, which sounded like thousands of angels crying, or something like that. The Iraqi mutants fled in panic after the passing. Uh, The White Sword and his hundred kept the Amenthi demons at bay for a bit. The mutants lived in a sealed-off society. The creepy summoner was born. I, I mean, we are literally seeing the same exact stuff here. I'm going to gloss over the next few pages of material that isn't different enough from the Summoner story to repeat. We get to the bit where Iska turns on, turns over to the Amenthes, right? Genesis was convinced to give Annihilation an audience, to entertain Annihilation's words by Iska. And so we jump ahead to Genesis's meeting with Annihilation, and uh, just like in the Summoner story, they cross swords. Now here is where the story diverts, however. You see, once they clash swords here, Genesis didn't die. She won the fight. Unfortunately, there are strings attached when you battle Annihilation. Whoever defeats the helm claims the helm. And over the next hundred years, Genesis refused to wear the helm, and so chaos reigned. She finally decided to wear the thing, and it takes her over. She leads the hordes of Amenthi demons into Arako, and Arako falls. Now, back in the present, Apocalypse suggests that Genesis could fight the urges of the Helm. After all, she is the strongest person he ever knew. She ain't feeling it. She says she no longer fights the urges, now she fights for them. She wants everything, and she wants Krakoa. They part company, and we're done. But we do have info pages here. The first info page is the Three Demandments here, and we saw a take on this page way back during Hoxpox when they were, you know, making the laws of Krakoa. You know, kill no man, make more mutants, respect this land. Now they read, make more mutants, destroy our enemies, and defend this broken land. Certainly worth eating up a whole page, though. In fairness, they probably put more effort into this one than reprinting art we already saw like a month ago. We got another info page regarding the mutants of Arako, and I'm not even going to bother with it. That's it. Next episode, thank God it's Marauders. But let's talk about this. Um, uh, do you believe this? I mean, I don't even know what to say here. Is anybody up for Batlapsed? 
uh, Jeff lapsed. Uh, I mean, we we can we can shift gears, right? I really can't believe. I mean, the only difference we get in this entire issue is that Genesis beats Annihilation and becomes Annihilation. Well, you know, since we saw the reveal at the end of X of Swords Stasis that Genesis was now Annihilation, you'd almost think we'd be smart enough to put two and two together, right? I mean, if there's one thing I've learned in doing this project, Jonathan Hickman writes comics for smart people. So we really shouldn't need to be beaten over the head by this, right? We shouldn't need an entire damn issue to to do one change to a story we just heard. How about we go back to my standard X of Swords observation here. Um, Why should we care about any of this? We only met Genesis in the Summoner's story. And all we know about her is that she is or was Apocalypse's wife. And that's not enough. Why should we care? This isn't, you know, Rosebud was his sled or Darth Vader's Luke's father. This isn't, this isn't something, this isn't a huge revelation. But I feel like the story expects us to feel like it is. With as many random characters that Hickman drops into his stories, these characters only serve the purpose of pushing a single story. Why am I supposed to care about this? How am I supposed to react to this? Let's jump back to X-Men number 12 for a second, uh, because we must. Our whole retroactive takeaway from that issue was, hey, the summoner's a liar, right? I mean, we we took that story at face value when we heard it, because we had no reason, besides the fact that the, the Summoner looks like an absolute creep, we didn't have any reason to think that he might be lying. Of course, you know, we have to tell a story here, so there's always a possibility. But when he betrayed Apocalypse and he sided with the Amenthi, he actually told us, hey, I'm a liar. I, 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 that's what I do. It's, it's one of my powers. I lie. So if we're going to repeat his story, shouldn't it have been... I don't know, a lot more different? Instead, it's like the Summoner basically told the truth up until the very end of his story where Genesis was slain by Annihilation. I, this is so lazy. This is so lazy. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, everybody. I, I really don't have anything more to say about this one. This is almost parody-level padding here. Um... And I hate to I hate to lay it at the feet of the creative teams here. Maybe we can shift the blame to Marvel's marketing department. Maybe they're the ones who said this has to fill 22 issues. Unless that was a Hickman and Howard call, I, I really don't know. This issue was both ballsy and lazy, and at least $2 overpriced for what we actually get here. There's no way that this issue, which features mostly pages we just paid for in full a month ago, to go on sale for full price again. And you know what? Perhaps worst of all, I'd put money on somebody giving this issue a 10 out of 10 review score. And I hope your integrity is worth the uh, the retweet, because uh, this was an absolute insult to people following along with this story here. People who went all in and said they were going to buy 22 issues, plus a handbook, to follow this story. This is an insult. This is a slap in the face of the people who went all in on this. No reason for it. This this issue didn't need to exist. This could have been, and, and I've made this comment several times throughout our discussions of late, this entire issue could have been an info page at the end of Stasis. It could have been, hey, 
The summoner lied. Hey, Genesis actually beat Annihilation and became Annihilation. Because that's it. That's all we got here. And I feel very, very bad for anybody who paid full price for this, because there's no excuse for this. Uh, Are they that far behind? I... There, there's no excuse for this issue No excuse at all And, yeah, I mean, this is our flagship uh, Allegedly It's no good No good at all But uh, I, I'm i veering into repeating myself And I do that a lot of late Especially of late So let's, uh, let's just stop right there <laughs> And we'll hop into the mailbag here We'll talk about other things That might be a little bit more pleasant We're going to start with Damien Who's talking about Marauders number 13 He says, I absolutely love this issue. Since episode one, I've been complaining about how Storm has been presented. She's probably my favorite X-Man, and she has been terribly underwritten. Even when they did a storyline about her in the Giant Size X-Men series, she was barely present. Finally, with this issue, she's back. What I was particularly impressed with was the fact that Vida Ayala dealt with the worst element of Storm's continuity in her marriage to T'Challa and made it seem like something Storm would do. It truly was impressive work. Continuity works best when it's used to inform character and future motivation. The events of this issue do lead Storm into a new series post-X of Tens, and it's great to see genuine character development happening in a crossover. I was particularly impressed with Vita Ayala in this issue, and I'm glad that they are taking over New Mutants after X of Tens. Imagine what they can achieve combined with Rod Reese. This was a good issue. This was a good issue, despite the fact that I really, you know, the Wakandan politics really aren't up my alley. And uh, Storm, as a character, is one that I kind of go hot and cold with here. Sometimes I think she's fantastic. Other times I, I would just like her to go away. I, I remember when um, Joe Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel were on the X-Books here. And it felt like it was like a running gag. Because they were, they'd be interviewed in Wizard like every few months about the X-Men books. And they were only on the X-Men books for, I think, less than a year. Uh, but it was such a big shakeup. It was post Lobdell, and it just felt like a breath of fresh air. And they'd give interviews, and they would always talk about how Storm was going to die. They, they always wanted to kill off Storm. And I remember the uh, the Magneto War was a storyline that sort of put a pin in the Joseph storyline. And uh, Magneto was given... He threatened to turn the Earth off its axis, I believe, and... Uh, was given Genosha as like a settlement, you know, as to not do that. So he became the ruler of Genosha for uh, until until Cassandra Nova did the thing in uh, the Morrison, uh, the first Morrison uh, arc. But the story that Kelly and Siegel wanted to do was that uh, he actually did turn the Earth off its axis, and somehow Storm like sacrifices herself, like re-regulating the weather of the planet or something like that. I always thought that was an interesting. Idea. Uh, I can see why they didn't do it, but uh, you know, editors were kind of editors kind of overstepped their uh, their bounds back then. It's the pendulum has swung way too far the other direction nowadays. But back to the Marauders issue, it was good. It was a good issue. Um, perhaps even better with hindsight, since uh, so many of these chapters of X of Tens in the interim have just been horrendous. They have been really, really bad So it makes the good ones stand out even more So things like Marauders and Hellions and uh, X-Factor Are just like solid gold Compared to most everything else we've gotten so far And New Mutants wasn't wasn't bad But uh, 
it's been a tough road to hoe <laughs> throughout the rest of the line here. And I was unaware that uh, Vida or Vida Ayala, I'll just, I think I'll just call them Ayala, uh, is taking over uh, New Mutants from Ed Brisson after uh, the crossover wraps up. That's a, that's a good thing. And it, it, it kind of stinks to say it because I've been enjoying... I've been covering, you know, Extermination, which is an Ed Brisson story, and I've been really, really enjoying that. But on New Mutants, it feels like it's a totally different guy, totally different writer, totally different style. Just uh, doesn't work for me. It doesn't work near as well as it does on Extermination, which I think, you know, is really, really good up to the point that I've read it so far. But uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing uh, uh, some new, uh, a new, some new takes on the New Mutants title. Damien continues, I think I mentioned in my last feedback that I was going to drop X of Tens after the Muramasa story, but I'd already bought this issue, so I thought I may as well read it. I was immediately back in. This is a perfect example of what great crossover stories do. They use the event as a backdrop to show you what the characters are about. Agreed 100%. Agreed 100%. And I, I gotta wonder, I mean, had this issue not come out the same day, as the Moramasa two-parter, I wonder if uh, if there'd be a bunch of people who would have dropped this, because that was exceptionally weak. Uh, you know, not as weak as this issue of X-Men we covered today, but not great either, not terribly inspired. So I wonder if... Uh, I- I'm, I'm sure there was no planning on it, because I don't think Marvel thinks they put out lousy issues, but... Uh, I wonder, had the Marauder story come out a week later, a week or two later... If people would have uh, just been like, nah, not going to do it. I'll wait until uh, these 22 parts are out of the way and maybe I'll dip my toes back in afterwards. But it's true. Everything you said there is true. Uh, Using the crossover to tell a storm story. A storm story that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten. uh, Giving her motivation and letting us spend some time with her. Because, as you said, she's been a... Wildly underwritten, and when she is written, she's sort of out of character a lot of the times here. At least in my opinion, with the, you know, the culty chances, and not not my not my cup of tea, and uh, the giant size books, which, uh, you know, uh, she was supposed to be the the big deal of it, I think, and didn't really show. It didn't really show there. Uh, Damien wraps up with anyway. Until the collective Marvel universe stops falling in love with Storm, make my next lapsed. Well, thank you so much for uh, helping me to change the subject from uh, today's issue. <laughs> because, whew, um, I almost threw it in with this issue. I almost threw it in. I almost, uh, I almost became the uh, non-completionist. Uh, we were going to just jump into Marauders because <laughs> I didn't want to do this one. Uh, but uh, duty calls, as always. And uh, also... Uh, Obsession uh, calls as well But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Damien Next up, uh, Jesse's going to give us some Exitens catch-up here He says Having recently completed Exoswords I just have a few things to remark on But none of it passed where we are currently on the podcast In Wolverine, they used the one thing I hate about Wolverine comics How can Wolverine regenerate from nothing? They, they've done this little trope of Wolverine emerging from lava or molten steel and still able to regenerate from nothing. Where is he getting the matter to even grow back everything? But even though I hate how he can grow back from nothing, I hate even more how his skeleton can move with no muscle, sinew, or cartilage. 
I'll give this the benefit of the doubt since he's on another plane of existence, but how many times have we seen his skeleton move with nothing there to move it? Petty, I know, but that, but that's what we're, that's what talking comics are all about. It's true. It's definitely something that uh, it's something that they do a little too often, isn't it? I remember um, this takes me back to my uh, Usenet days in the uh, mid to late '90s, where I saw I think it was a Kate the Short had the X Men fac FAQ and. Uh, had all those questions that everybody wanted to know answers to uh, about, you know, things in the book, things out of the book, about the creators. It was a really, really fun resource, and I, I spent way too much time reading that and rereading it. And uh, I, I might try to dig it up again after this episode and read it again, because uh, it's just it's just a fun little uh, time capsule there. And one of the questions on there was, uh, can Wolverine uh, really regenerate from a drop of blood? And uh, they said, according to one story, it was a Uncanny X-Men Annual number 11. And it has Wolverine fighting some big burly, like, orange guy on the cover. I don't remember his name. I don't remember much about the story. But uh, Wolverine was pretty much, he was destroyed. He was destroyed, and, like, one drop of his blood landed on a crystal or something, and it brought him... It regenerated him. He came back to life. So I don't know how much of that had to do with his healing factor or the gem or a combination of the two, but any time I see people comment on commenting on Wolverine being able to regenerate from basically nothing, I go back to that Uncanny X-Men annual, because, that, because of that uh, FAQ... I ran out to the store and I I bought that issue. I ran out and got that issue because I had to see it. It was also some Claremont X Men, which my uh, my collection was sorely lacking back in the long ago. I, I had not, not not done my due diligence and gone backwards to uh, to collect back. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's something I think you can do every so often. Nowadays, it feels like every time Wolverine's in a fight, he loses a body part. And we watch it grow back It's definitely overdone Uh, Jesse continues I love that they used Polaris as a strong opening character into this crossover Polaris and Havoc have been my two favorite superheroes since I started collecting in 1994 It's been years since we've even seen the two of them in the same room talking to each other I love them going on a mission together and thought it was overdue Polaris is such a strong female character who has an extensive backstory that rarely gets her due She has never had her own series or even a one-shot. I'm glad that she got her time in the spotlight, even if it was brief. And yeah, Polaris was really, really well used here. And uh, I think uh, last we we looked at the uh, the polling results for the X-Men vote, I'm pretty sure Polaris is running away with it. So uh, we might be seeing more of her. Unfortunately, it'll be under Hickman's uh, script. So... (laughs) Guess we take the good with the bad there. It it was really nice seeing Havoc and Polaris together, though. It uh, definitely took me back to my uh, my early days in the fandom here, and uh, they were both written as like healthy adults. You know, I think about the uh, the Chuck Austin run where they almost got married, but Lorna was absolutely insane, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the ladies that uh, Mr. Austin wrote were uh, were kind of insane. He might have had uh, some issues there. But it was nice to see Havoc and Polaris acting like, 
you know, sane adults in this issue, and it's nice to see them get a little bit of a spotlight. That said, it was kind of weird that uh, Havoc turned out to be the guy who accepted Saturnine's challenge. Despite, you know, I mean, outside of the couple issues of Hellions, he's really, he's been a background character, hasn't really done a whole lot. But, uh, hey, you know, you take what you can get, I suppose, when you're a, uh, when you're Scott Summers' little brother. Uh, Jesse continues, Now to our favorite topic of cloning. My big question recently is about mutants who have injuries or missing limbs. We have seen someone like Domino get all of her skin back after Resurrection, but others like Chamber, who was dead leading into Hoxpox, still missing the lower half of his face. We know that with my man Jono, that his missing face and chest are not part of his mutation because in the Age of Apocalypse he's able to use a chest plate to, reg- to regulate his powers. So once he was resurrected, they must have let him blow his face off without even knowing that would happen. Uh, my, my, the main question is how far does missing body parts go? Forge and Karma have missing legs. Forge is also missing a hand. Hellion is missing both hands from half of his arm down. What about Cable? If he died, would they resurrect him with all of the eye scars and techno-organic viruses? Would Wizkid be able to walk or be back in a chair since he lost the use of his legs in an accident? Maybe we'll discover more later, but this is interesting to think about. Who gets to be whole, and who gets to be the same as before? I want to point out that just because someone has a disability doesn't mean they're not whole. Excellent question. Really, really good question, and certainly not something I ever stopped to uh, consider. And I bet you the, uh, I bet you the creators didn't either. Um, very, very interesting stuff there. I mean, I'm trying to think if we've had someone come back since, uh, since Hoxpox who would give us a little insight as to what they would do. Like, would Forge and Karma be resurrected without their limbs? Would uh, would Chamber come back without the lower part of his face and his chest? That's really, really interesting stuff here. I, I you know, I, I don't hope for any mutant death because we've certainly seen uh, more than our fair share of it. But uh, yeah, I definitely want to see these an- these questions answered for sure. Uh, Jesse continues. One more thing, and it has nothing to do with Dawn of X, but I liked it just the same. In the uncanny run right before Hoxpox, Cyclops lost an eye. He did. Ooh. Uh, they didn't. They don't explain how he got it back, but most likely due to healer or elixir. But that's the first time I remember Cyclops being an actual Cyclops. I actually like that a lot. I didn't even know that was a thing. That's a. Uh, I don't know that I like it, but it's interesting. It's definitely interesting to have a guy who's been known as Cyclops for most of his life uh, actually only having one eye. Was that the way he was in Age of Apocalypse? I could have sworn the the visor only covered, or only showed one eye. I might be misremembering that, but I could have sworn that was like a thing that they made a deal out of there. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, thanks Chris for all you do. Well, thank you for all you do. The kind words and motivation really, really help fuel this uh, program and this project. Uh, it certainly isn't the books that are pushing me forward right now. It's a... Uh, it's the conversation and the discussion and the uh, the community. So thank you so, so much there, Jesse. Uh, next, we got two messages from our friend Evan. First, he's talking about X-Men number 12. Uh, he says, As far as the info dumps for Arako go, I agree it should have been woven into other issues to build a story rather than crammed into X-Men number 12. I think they're making a similar mistake with the info pages describing the realms of Otherworld. 
Some sound interesting, but how about a page of art with them? Or some kind of in-comics material? Beyond the fact that they're in Otherworld, I don't know what they have to do with the X of X's story. Are they going to be the stages or backdrops for the sword fights? Your guess is as good as mine, my friend. Um, and I really hate ragging on the, the creative here, because I feel like that's kind of an easy thing to do if you're you know in the mind to do it. It's easy to blame everything on the creators here, but... Uh, there's this level of unevenness in this entire Hoxpox Docs uh, world here. Um, there are times when we've talked about this before where, like, we have to make up our own motivations for characters. We have to make up our own theories. We, we do that a lot on this show. We make up theories. We justify why, why characters are acting certain ways. We fill in our own headcanon here, and... We make these stories that may not otherwise fit or may not otherwise flow. We try to make them make sense. It's kind of like uh, one of those one of those tests where like every other letter of a word is missing and like your brain fills it in, right? Half the time it's like that. The other half of the time, it's just so densely crammed down our throats to where there's absolutely no room to wiggle here. And that's what we're getting with with the overabundance of info pages and with things like X-Men number 12 and now X-Men number 14. The unevenness is just so... um, It's hard to swallow because you never know what you're going to get. It makes for a very unsatisfying uh, reading experience here. And as for all the Otherworld stuff, this... I I think I mentioned this either last episode or the episode before that. It, It feels just like we're throwing out ideas. We're throwing out battle worlds. Uh, so maybe maybe they will be backdrops here, since that seems to be the M.O. I don't know, though. It just feels like... When I saw the Otherworld map, I, I referred to it as Baby's First Grant Morrison's Multiversity. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like we're just... we're. I love world building, but it feels like we're building a world just for the sake of saying we built a world here. There's no reason for this world to exist. And after this story's over, I... I bet you that we're not going to hear much from any of these characters again. So it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm back to repeating myself again, so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Evan's second message includes his Dawn of X Wave 1 number 13 power rankings, which I'm very excited to share with everybody. He says, hey, I just read a few number 13s in recent days, so why not toss out my first ever power rankings? Now, Evan's book of the 13s is New Mutants. He says, the story made sense on its own and in the context of the overall crossover. Doug is the least likely combatant, and Krakoa, Magic, and Exodus all have their reasons for not wanting him to compete. Doug doesn't want to either, but he doesn't want anyone to die in his place. Evan's number two book is Marauders. He says, the confrontation feels a little forced, but I like that Black Panther didn't stop Storm from taking the sword. He was disappointed, but didn't let hurt feelings and politics get in the way of saving the world. 3. Excalibur. I feel like I'm missing something. Or some things. But this issue justifies the X-Men's rule-breaking by showing just how sketchy the rule-maker is. 4. X-Men. It illuminates, or at least adds, to the backstory. And it's not... (laughs) X-Force. When your story's an adventure in hell, that's already a strike or two against. Maybe the mutant CIA could have gotten some intel on Arako's contestants before Part 11 instead of stretching the story out to a second issue. 
Very, very well said there. I think we're mostly on the same page, just our number one and number two are flip-flopped here. But uh, I thank you so much for sharing your power rankings, and I encourage everyone else to uh, share yours as well here. If you agree, disagree, whatever the case, anything is good for conversation, discussion, and uh, in some cases, uh, distracting from uh, the slog that this 22-part crossover event might be every now and again. So uh, please, please feel free to uh, share your thoughts here, and uh, you can do so easily. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join the conversation on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and you can listen to a whole bunch of podcasts with a comic book focus over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will thankfully do it for X-Men Volume 5, Number 14. Let's never, ever speak of it again. Usually I would apologize for being overly negative toward a book. I'm not going to do that today, because this was uh, this was something else altogether. I'd like to thank you all for sharing your time with me on this fine day. And till next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh